Well, thank you, worship team, again, for leading us today in singing. I hope you're able to, on most Sundays, join us a little early where we uh, can sing together. And then we have fewer songs during the once we get to 1045, but I don't want you to miss out on those moments where we can sing together um, with the worship team. I wanted to say a few things um, just about what's going on in our nation. I, I feel like uh, um, to say nothing hate indifference to you, and I don't want to communicate that in any way, or to say nothing would, would perhaps even be communicated to you as, as choosing sides. I, I was thinking yesterday and even this morning that it's pretty amazing to think that um, just yesterday, and I just understand a few minutes ago, um, the SpaceX, um, the two astronauts, they docked on the International Space Station. I still can't get my mind around this. That um, I think they're traveling at some 19,000 miles per hour or something like that, and, and they're, they're docking with something that's moving 17,000 miles per hour. If I understood it right, either way, it's just amazing that they were able to do that. But then when you come back to Earth, you realize that even though we can send humans to space, we are still um, killing one another. And we're still at war with one another. And we still haven't figured out how to get along and how to truly love one another. It really is a contrast, isn't it? To just consider. You know, as George Floyd, as you probably, as I did, watched the video last Tuesday morning is when I first saw it. George was apparently a Christian. He was killed unjustly. And he was killed while he was under restraint by police using excessive force. That was very clear to anybody who watched the video. Now, we want to be careful to wait for the courts to render the proper judgment. But there are certain things as believers we don't have to wait for. As Keith led us a little while ago, we, we don't have to wait to grieve a death that should not have happened. We, we don't have to wait to, to acknowledge the fear and the pain and the anger that's legitimately provoked in minority communities, we don't have to wait for that. These are moments that are teaching moments. And, and as one of your pastors, I want to be careful not to um, communicate that I want you to buy into my political position. That's not my place. Nor is it my place to implement policy changes, as you know. Um, but... I wish that I could choose teaching moments, but sometimes our culture and what happens in our lives demands that we say something. And, and my position as one of your pastors and my responsibility is to try to help you think biblically and to respond biblically when things happens as, happen this way. And, and that's what I want to just remind you of again. You know, the Scriptures are not without answers. Um, they're actually filled with answers. And I want us to think in terms of our moral proximity, or maybe I could say it, that which is close to you. If you've been like me the last few days, I've been wondering, what can I do? What, what can I do to show that, that I feel the pain of my African-American brothers and sisters? How, how can I express that? Um, how can I be an agent for change? Um, so I don't know if you've felt similar feelings. You want to do something, but you're not sure exactly what to do. Um, I, I do think that the Scriptures, and we've seen this through the book of Psalms, we, we have a wonderful pattern for lament. And lament just simply means to cry. 
to fill someone else's pain. We saw that last week, didn't we? To learn to say we and mean me and say me and mean we and begin to actually place ourselves in the moccasins of another person, the tennis shoes of another person. So we can lament, and we should be. And I really appreciated our brother a little while ago leading us in a prayer of crying, a prayer of, a prayer of lament. I, I think the other thing we need to do, and we've said a lot about this, is listen. Um, you know, one of the points of wisdom in the Scriptures when you're, when you're reading Proverbs, and then you get to the only wisdom book in the New Testament, the book of James, one of the characteristics of a wise man or a wise woman is someone who listens more than they talk. Um, someone who, who waits to make a statement, who, who before they have answered and let everybody know in the world that they've got it all figured out, they really just say, hey, you know what, maybe this is a moment for me to just listen to the person who is suffering right now. And I want to encourage us that we want to be wise. Our Savior was the image of wisdom, right? And we are to be like Him. And I want to encourage us to listen, to, to listen more than we talk. It doesn't mean we never speak, but we need to listen more than we speak. And, and Proverbs pictures listening as walking along with somebody, and, and that's the way we listen, Right? It's not thinking about what I want to say while you're talking to me, which is easy to do. But it's actually caring and listening and maybe repeating back to the person what you understood that they said. And we need to love people. And I know that's a very general Christianese word, but, but we need to love those that are different from us. We need to seek to empathize with them. So lamenting, listening, loving, it's going to be my pastoral advice for us all right now to Ask the Lord to give us this kind of grace to respond to those, to the tragedy in Minneapolis and now in cities all across our country and also to those that are outside, those that are our neighbors, those that we have contact with, those that are part of the minority community in our church. Listening, lamenting with them, loving them and allowing God to help us Show Christ-like love in the midst of this. You know, culture wars are not, not the churches. And I'm not suggesting that we become identified with a certain side. And I want to encourage you as a believer that you resist the tendency to make this political, to make this a side. But let's, let's not vilify one another because the Scriptures say that's sinful. So for me to vilify groups of people because of one person's sin is sinful. To break the sinful. And Christians are called to give up their rights for the good of others. So what does it look like in a moment of crisis like this? The Scriptures do speak to it, folks. And I don't want to remind you that we need to go to the Word. We need to ask the Spirit of God to shape us and grow us. Lament. Listen. Love. Let's be Christ-like in our response. Let's be careful with our words. Let's not vilify and use our words sinfully. But we also need to pray. And again, I appreciate our brother leading us this morning to pray as God's people that he would heal our land. I mean, again, we've sent two guys again, two astronauts, two men, to space. But we still, on earth, when they get back, problems are still here. Let's lament. Let's listen. Let's love.
praying for you. Hope you'll pray for me that we'll respond in a way that brings glory to Christ and communicates love and reconciliation in our world. I want to change gears and ask you to turn to Psalm 130. And um, I'm going to start doing something every week. I just got a text from Pastor John, and it's, it was a helpful text. Last week, right before the um, Pilgrim's Progress movie, we said we're about to have the Pilgrim's Progress movie. But we forgot that we might have guests that came on today for the first time. And you change? <laughs> Why the cartoon? So, so that's Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm going to start just introducing that each week so that everybody knows. That was really helpful advice. Psalm 130 is where we're at this morning. And this is a place, this is the section that um, Dr. Mike Soller read for us at the beginning of our worship. And so we're here getting close to the end. We started this series of psalms. There's 15 of them called the Psalms of Ascents or Psalms of Degrees, which means they were going up. They would sing these groups of songs or choruses as they were making their way to the annual feast. It was somewhat like a camp trip or a family vacation. And you can imagine the songs that you sing when you're in your car to try to pass the time. It's kind of like that, but not completely. It really was reflective of what God was doing on their pilgrim journey. This is one of the few psalms of all of these 15, really the only one of the 15, that we consider to be a penitential psalm or a psalm of confession. There are seven of those in the psalms as we try to count them. You may want to jot these down. There's one in Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 106, of course Psalm 130, and then Psalm 143. Those are confession psalms. They're psalms that appears that the children of Israel as they're headed up to the feast to be in the very presence of God, began to contemplate their own sin. And as they began to contemplate their own sin, this is different than other psalms that talk about a threat without. They're going to refer to the threat that's within them, their own inward sin. And this is a psalm of confession. It's a psalm of believing, the psalm of God's people confessing their sins. And then the beauty and joy and refreshment that confessing our sins to a forgiving God brings to us. I have many stories like this, but one that etched it in my mind about the problem of a guilty conscience was a moment in Greenwood, South Carolina, where our, my parents owned a 73, a 1973, I think, Toyota Corolla, had that hatchback on the back. And this was before you could buy a car with tinted windows, and we'd take a lot of trips. We had black interior. And so they decided they would buy some of that um, tint in a can. And they would tint the back windows so that we could prevent some of the sun from coming in on our long trips. Well, there was some leftover tint. And I thought, this will be a lot of fun. So I took the leftover tint and I went down underneath the house. And some, my dad had some lights down there with paintbrushes and other tools and I decided I would paint those light bulbs with the tent and just see what it would look like. It was really cool. It looked like kind of one of those rooms where they used to develop film in, right? And it had this kind of an eerie feel to it. I didn't think much more of it. Went out to play. I think it was in the summertime. But I do remember when Dad got home from work and went down under the house. And then he came out. I think he was yelling. And he was yelling, my name, my brother's name. That wasn't unusual. And then he came and interrogated both of us. Interrogated my brother first, and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. And then he came to me, and I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. And I lied. 
and immediately my conscience was struck, but I thought I could get by with it. There was a problem, though. Some of that tint had gotten on my hand, and I couldn't get it off. I tried to wash it repeatedly in the sink in the bathroom. It wouldn't come off. I tried some, some soap that mom had under the sink. It wouldn't come off. And so I, 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 dad kept interrogating us. He kept coming back to James. He kept coming back to, to me, and he would say, did you paint the light bulbs under the house with the tent? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I would get a little more nervous each time, but then, then my conscience became a little bit hardened, and I didn't think about it as much. And one night, mom had made my favorite meal, which was fried chicken, rice and gravy, cheesy cabbage, what we call cathead biscuits, buttermilk biscuits. I know I'm making you hungry right now. But that was what was for dinner. I always sat across from my dad, just four of us. My brother sat across from my mom. And I'd forgotten about the tent on my hand. I was just enjoying a lot of fried chicken. And I remember enjoying the fried chicken and in the midst of enjoying that delicious meal, my dad said, Brian, what's that on your hands? <laughs> I think I dropped the piece of chicken. I don't remember exactly. I just remember my heart sank. And I remember I was in a different location real quickly after that and received some, some discipline that I deserved. But you know what happened? As soon as I was disciplined, I went to the sink and that stuff came off. Not only was my conscience cleared, but, but it came off. It was a life lesson for me. I know it's kind of a silly story, but it, it was a moment that I've actually reflected on in other times where I had allowed sin to crop up in my life. And I refused to confess it. And like David, my bones waxed. And, and, and there, was, there was this pain almost physically because I was hiding sin rather than confessing it. And here in Psalm 130, it has been a favorite psalm of many of our uh, heroes in church history. Augustine, it was a favorite of Calvin. It was a favorite of Wesley, actually used by the Lord, when Wesley, the, the morning of Wesley's salvation, John Wesley's salvation, Luther loved it. In fact, one time Luther was asked by one of his students, Dr. Martin, could you please tell us your favorite psalms? What of all of the psalms are your favorites? And Luther replied with a little smirk on his face, I prefer the Pauline psalms. <laughs> the Pauline psalms? His student was like, I didn't know Paul wrote any psalms. He was referring to these penitential psalms. He was referring to particularly Psalm 130. These psalms of confession and of God's forgiveness by grace alone, through faith alone. And so with that introduction, I want us to, to bore into this psalm this morning with this whole understanding that great worship Great love, great service always flows out of understanding God's great forgiveness and enjoying God's great forgiveness. There are so many benefits into the Christian life of living in light of our forgiveness, of appropriating that forgiveness, that justifying forgiveness that takes place when we're born again, but we keep applying it by confession and allowing our fellowship with Christ to be maintained by acknowledging our sin, according to 1 John 1, 9, that we confess our sin, and just to forgive us. So great worship flows out of great forgiveness, great love flows out of great forgiveness, and great service flows out of great forgiveness. It all flows 
without a great forgiveness. Now this psalm, very short again, starts with the need for forgiveness, then the cry for forgiveness, and then the assurance of that forgiveness. So first of all, the need for God's forgiveness, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you. Um, now the Latin for that is de profundus, which means out of the depths. It, it has the idea of being in a great body of water and you're afraid you're going to drown. Or you assume you are drowning. You're overwhelmed. But in this picture, you're alienated from God. See, the despair and the distress is pictured by being in the depths. And out of the depths, that's where I cried to you, O Lord. And you'll notice again, it's all caps. This means that this is God's covenant name, his personal name, Jehovah. O Lord, he uses a different word for God here, Adonai. So Jehovah, the God who, who sees all, he's the personal God, and then the God who knows all, the more general name for God, Adonai, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So we know that what he is asking for here is not grace, but mercy. He's asking for forgiveness. So this picture is of a seafarer, of someone who is in the sea, and he's given the Lord a command. Now, it doesn't take much reminders that the people of Israel, while they were associated with water a lot in their history, they didn't. They weren't fond of it. In fact, their picture and thought of water was destruction. I mean, the first experience they had, really, that we know about with water was when they were rescued in the Red Sea, and they watched it come on top of all of the Egyptians. And then in other poems, well, before that, you know, even in the history of God's dealing with man, we have the great flood. So, so they're not really fond of water. And his picture here is one who is drowning, but he's drowning and he's in need of mercy. So that tells us he's talking about drowning in his own sin. And he's crying out to Jehovah. He's crying out to Adonai, please rescue me. I don't know if you've ever felt like you're about to drown. I've had that happen a couple times. I'm not the strongest swimmer. Some people have asked, would you ever do a triathlon? I just, I'm not a really strong swimmer. Just not. I, mean, I, can, I can get my way around, but I can get pretty in danger easily. <laughs> I remember one year we were at the Cape, and we were just swimming out there, and I, it was very windy, and I thought I was closer into the shore than I was, and no one could hear me because it was so windy. So I remember trying to, I, I tried to stand up and I realized I couldn't stand up and so I realized I'm in danger here. I'm, I'm not a good swimmer and I'm not moving very close to the shore. In fact, the waves were pushing me back and I began to panic and do what you shouldn't do as a swimmer, which I tried harder, which would use more energy. And then I tried to yell and no one could hear me. And, and this is the picture. Now, I didn't drown, of course, thankfully. But, but here's the picture of one who's, who's yelling, but everybody knows when you're about to drown. That's the most difficult thing to do because who will hear you when you're about to drown? Well, the Lord hears. And so this metaphor of despair and sinking is it's different than the other Psalms. It's not about problems without, but it's a problem within. Do you remember any Old Testament story about someone who cried out from the depths? who was engulfed in water, but more than that, engulfed, engulfed by a fish? It was Jonah. 
I mean, he had that underwater condo, right, that he was stuck in. But he's crying a similar prayer to the Lord in Jonah. He's asking for rescue. See, this describes real guilt. And I want us to see this. This is not just a feeling of guilt. It's not just, I mean, feelings are described in Psalm 130, but we could act more accurately call this what criminologists might term forensic guilt. It's not as much about your feelings, but it's actual guilt. And, and what the psalmist is saying here is I'm guilty. In a personal and a profound way, I'm guilty, and the person I'm guilty to is God. I have personally and profoundly offended God, the Lord. Something's going on inside him. Can you relate to this? If you're taking notes, I point out that this is theological guilt, using a big word there to remind you that, again, this is not social guilt, that the community is making you feel guilty because you're not following their patterns. Um, This is not just, just simply a feeling, but it's actually theological guilt. It's the right emotional response because you have done wrong another penitential psalm that's very famous psalm 51 david wrote it penned it right after his sin with bathsheba and killing her husband adultery here's what he says against you you only have i sinned see according to the bible while our sin can hurt other people it can hurt ourselves ultimately our sin is exclusively guilt before god And this helps us with kind of a microcosm of the entire Bible. I've mentioned this to you before, but the Bible has a big storyline to it. And if you look at this passage kind of through that microcosm, the whole magisterial gospel story is revealed. Because from the original created goodness in Genesis 1 and 2 to the fall of Genesis 3 to the final redemption of the cross. So because of Genesis 3, there's what we call theological guilt. You should feel this. Now I know in in our culture, no one's supposed to feel guilty. We're never supposed to make anyone feel guilty. But actually, this is a guilt you're supposed to feel. If your conscience is red in your soul, is working, if the batteries are good, you should feel guilt because of sin. See, the Bible as it unfolds and redemption comes... This microcosm in this psalm shows that redemption comes too, but let's not skip over that too quickly. There is a need for forgiveness. There is a need because there's sin. And a second point here is true conviction is actually good. Guilt because of our sin is not bad. It's actually good. He uses two phrases that would have been very familiar to the children of Israel. The phrase is here, out of the depths, and then I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So verse 2, do you see that? Let your ears be attentive. Same words that Solomon used at the dedication of the temple. Before the sacrifices started, let your, let your ears be attentive. And then the other phrase, out of the depths, would have reminded them of the greatest rescue they ever experienced, and it was from Egypt was the exodus. It was when the Red Sea opened up for them. See, true conviction is is good. It's not bad. 
It was almost like for them, those two phrases would have been like the Apostles' Creed, perhaps for some of us as Christians, or the U.S. Constitution. I mean, we're very familiar with this creed and with this document. And for him to use these two expressions, it was to bring back to their minds these moments of redemption through sacrifice. I mean, the, the death angel came across, and that was the night of the Passover, right before their exodus from Egypt. And then the dedication of the temple, and he asked the Lord to be attentive to his cry. Which means this, there's the possibility of Christians, of believers, having a feeling of guilt that's not true theological guilt. Or I could say it this way, there's the possibility of having a worldly sorrow, but not a godly sorrow. Are you familiar with those two different feelings or repentances? I mean, what we find those is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, that there is a, a repentance with regret. We should not confuse, actually, repentance with regret or being sorry mentally. Likewise, we should not confuse remorse, being sorry mentally or emotionally with true godly repentance. And I want to refer you to this passage without going to it this morning, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he describes the difference. I believe he's referring to the gentleman that was removed from the church in 1 Corinthians 5. Receive him again. He's demonstrated true repentance. Versus a worldly sorry, I'm sorrow, I'm sorry I got caught. I really don't like all these consequences. But this was a true repentance. You know, we've only repented of our sin when we're prepared to let go of it. He's out of the depths. He wants to be freed from this guilt. And folks, this is not the cry of someone who's just sorry they got caught. Just embarrassed by the consequences. We see that kind of false repentance all the time. This is not that. This is someone who says, I don't want my sin more. I want to let go of it. I mean, we see through the Scriptures this false repentance often. Esau cried. He lamented, but he didn't repent. Saul cried. He lamented, but he didn't repent. Ahab cried. He lamented, but he didn't repent. Judas cried. He lamented, but he didn't repent. We're like, we're like Adam and Eve, our first parents, aren't we? We have this bottomless pit of excuses but repentance is calling sin what it is. And it's used, the word here is used iniquity. And that means to leave the right path. And transgression, another word used in the Old Testament for sin, means to cross the line. And another word called sin or used translated sin means to fall short. So this is thirdly a difference from common attitudes toward guilt. Some people, when they hear guilt, they think of puritanical, draconian, I mean, why would we ever encourage somebody to feel guilty? Or it's manipulative. It's a power game. Or it's merely psychological. But there's something called true biblical guilt. And that's what the psalmist is feeling here because he understands that his guilt is not just towards people. That's bad. It's not just towards himself, but it's against God. In other words, this is not just like a speeding ticket. Maybe we could put it like this. It's like spitting in the face of the president or punching the queen, if you're from England. I mean, this is a conviction of guilt. We have done this to God. 
So do you need to confess your sin? Well, let me ask you, do you have some of these symptoms? Do you, do you, do you often find yourself in the depths? Restless nights? Frayed nerves? Mood swings? Long face? Lack of joy? Disinterest in prayer? Bible study? Avoidance of the deeper things of your walk with Christ? Fear of discovery? Fear of your spouse or your children or other close friends and other Christians finding you out to be an imposter? Do you dismiss that guilt because of you don't want to be legalistic or extreme? Maybe it's an old habit that you've been falling into lately and you've just given up the fight. Or maybe you just stumbled into a sin and this week, what, what happens when you sin against the Lord? Is, is there a grief? Is there a desire for forgiveness? That's what this is, the need for confession. One of the signs that you are a believer, hear this, hear this friend, is your hatred for sin and your love for righteousness. I didn't say your perfection. We don't get that until we're glorified. But do you hate sin? When you fall into it, do you mourn and grieve and lament? Is there a, I'm in the depths again, God. Here I am again. And if you don't rescue me, I'm forever lost. Have you ever thought that that, that whale or fish, whatever it was, that swallowed Jonah, wasn't exactly a punishment as much as it was a rescue? I mean, here he is in the depths, but that's where he confessed his sin. That's where he was reconciled to God. So I want you to see the cry of God's forgive, for God's forgiveness next in verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who should stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now I want you to gulp this for just a moment. Imagine it with me. I know this is kind of familiar terminology if you've learned the Scriptures, grown up with the Scriptures, but just imagine it for a moment. If God should mark iniquities, I mean like, publish a public record of all of your sins, would you be able to stand? Now, there are debates about what does that mean. So if God were to, on a big projector, for instance, in a public church gathering, begin to scroll every sin that you've thought, said, or done this past week, oh, what a Lord's Day that would be. Would you be able to stand? So the debate is, does that mean that, that would you be able to stand righteous before God? Well, the answer is obviously no. Or, or would you be able to stand in purity? And the answer again is, is no. Do you remember in John 8 when the woman caught in the very act of adultery? And then these religious leaders, they're ready to stone her. Jesus, what do you say? Moses said we should stone her. Lord Jesus began to write something on in the sand. I've always been curious, and I'm sure you have too. What was he writing? My suspicion is he was writing the Ten Commandments. <laughs> That's my suspicion. Again, I might be wrong, but I think I'm right. He's writing these commands, and all of those religious leaders, he then says to them, whoever around here is completely righteous, go ahead, throw your stone. And then they were told in the passage that from the older to the younger, they just, just left. Now, the Lord Jesus wasn't condoning sin in that moment. He was reminding us through this narrative 
that if God were to mark sins, there's nobody that could stand. Nobody could stand up to such a list, a meticulous account. I don't know about you, but I would be horrified if you knew my struggle with sin this past week. I mean, if it were all up on the the screen this morning and you got to see all my thoughts, all my words, and all my activities just last week, or maybe we could just say the last 48 hours, I wouldn't stand. I'd run out those doors. You know why? Because if anybody don't need a God of forgiveness, and the point is, no one can stand, no one can make it under that kind of accurate scrutiny, but with God, there's what? Forgiveness. Do you see this? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Who is a God like you? You forgive. I mean, over and again in the Scriptures, in Nehemiah 9, his great prayer, and then in Daniel 9, his great prayer, they keep pointing out this. After they confess their sins, they just say, but God, you're a God of forgiveness. You cancel debt. You remove guilt. Aren't you thankful our God is like this? You know, it reminds me of, of the, the words of the, the hymn, Rock of Ages. I mean, listen to verse 2. All the labors of my hands could not meet thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save, and you alone. So this, he says, because of this forgiveness, there is a reaction. You know what the reaction is? There's this forgiveness-fear connection. Do you see that? Are you surprised by that? You are a forgiving God, and because you're a forgiving God, people fear you. Wouldn't you have expected something like this? Because you're a forgiving God, people love you, they praise you, they adore you, they write wonderful songs about you. He says, because you forgive, they have this reverence for you. They have this awe for you. It begins to shape their life. What is this is saying is that reaction is the only reaction when we start realizing the weight of our sin. And one of the reasons why we don't fear God like we should is because we don't see sin as heinous as it really is. We don't realize that for one sin, a, whole, a soul can be eternally damned. That it was for one sin that the entire world was cast into the fall. That now, we as a society, we as a nation, we're watching the wicked hearts of sinful men and women on display. Where did this all start? There's forgiveness that's needed and because He grants forgiveness, because of this paternal loving endearment, our response is to fear Him. Now, I've got to read this passage, and I know I said I wasn't going to turn to a lot of passages, but just look with me in 1 Peter, real quickly, chapter 1. I want you to see this connection. He's a father who forgives, and as a response, we fear. 1 Peter, chapter 1, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time, of exile. So turn back to Psalm 130. 
This forgiveness-fear connection is because we now understand who our God is, and it should affect our asking for forgiveness, and it also motivates people to serve. He says, I fear you now. I'm going to serve you now. This is not by guilt. This is by response to God's grace. I want to I ask this question because it has been asked. I want to ask it and answer it as we kind of land the plane here in just a second. But what about asking for forgiveness? That's been debated by some Christians. Like You'll hear some people, even commentators, say, once we're justified, we should never have to ask God for forgiveness again. Now, in my, my office, I have a place for books like that, okay? It's, it's the heretical bookshelf. These are, these are places where I might need to reference these books, but I don't want them to be out too much in the open because I'm afraid somebody might read them. The Scriptures tell us, even Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, that we're to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. 1 John 1.9 references that we now as God's children are to confess our sins. What is he talking about? Well, know this. When we're justified, when we're saved, born again, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are dealt with at the cross. Amen? They're forever removed. But by confessing our sins in our walk with Christ, we are renewing our consciousness of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no contradiction between the justification by grace through faith and our need for ongoing forgiveness. When we ask God for forgiveness and cleansing, we are displaying our confidence in the justification that we have in Christ alone. One person has described it as fellowship versus sonship. We're not removed from the... But we're, we're removed from fellowship. Nothing kills our intimacy with God like sin, unconfessed in our lives. I want to finish, though, with the assurance, though. He, he makes this cry for forgiveness. He asks for forgiveness, and now he has the assurance of it. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and I hope in his word. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There are some massive theological shouting words right here in these last few verses, right? I mean, you've got hope. You've got redemption. You've got steadfast love. That's that hesed, that covenant faithfulness that God promises people. But why wait? If he asks for forgiveness, is he saying now I'm going to wait for God to actually do it? No, 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 no. You'll notice he's saying, I waited, I waited. I waited for the Lord. I hoped in His Word. And now he tells Israel, you need to hope in His Word too. So what he's doing is, he's saying, I'm looking forward. He, guilt is all about the past, isn't it? Guilt's all about what I've done. But, but now waiting on the Lord is this anticipation that He's not only forgiven me for past transgressions, but, but he's going to continue to show me this redemption and this steadfast love in the future. He's for us. Romans 8 says there's nothing that can separate us. Can you grapple with this? Not even your own present sin. I want to say it again, believer. Because there's some of you that struggle with this. 
Not even your own struggle with flesh and sin and the devil and the world now can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ. Glory! You've been forgiven. And in that ongoing battle, wait for the Lord. There's hope now. You've been justified. This battle with sin and the flesh and the devil. You can see victory. And you can do it in the power of the Spirit. And you can do it in the power of justification. This is not a contradiction. Confession and justification. And so I want to finish by appealing to unbelievers. If you've never understood that the only way you can be forgiven is not by just doing a little more. I mean, we're born with this idea that if I could just give a little bit, do a little bit better, do a little more, then I would be accepted. Oh, no. He was crying from the depths, and we all have to get to this point where we realize, I'm sunk without a rescue from the Savior. But I want to talk to believers as well. 1 John 1.9 says, Little children, I write to you that you sin not. But when you sin, you have an advocate. You have a lawyer. You know who it is? It's the one seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He's in His session now, making intercession for us all the time. It's the reason why we can come boldly, unashamed. And He says in verse 9, that when you sin, here's what you do. You confess your sin. The word confess has the word logos in it. It means to say the same thing about your sin that is said by another person. And in this case, it's exactly what God says about it. So how do you confess your sin? It's not like, sorry, like I stubbed my toe. It's, Lord, I've sinned against you in this way. I've broken this command. Please apply the blood of your Son and let me enjoy the cleansing that you promise and the renewal of fellowship. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And you know what you'll find? Always believer, he's faithful and he's just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Psalm 130 is a wonderful psalm for Lord's table. It's what we do every time we practice Lord's table and I can't wait for us to do that again on July 5th, God willing. It's another moment for us to rinse and repeat the gospel. It's a reminder that our feet still get dusty We still need to judge our hearts. Let the Holy Spirit take His investigative light to search us and know us. But these are the moments where this psalm come to life. And believer, I want to ask you, has your heart been heavy? Have you been cold towards the things of Christ, towards the things of the Spirit, towards the things of the Word? When was the last time you prayed? When was the last time you spent a few minutes in confession, really allowing the Spirit of God to search you? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Is it strange terminology to you? Is it strange, believer, that you would actually ask the Spirit of God to search you and then that leads to confessing specific sins to God and asking Him to forgive you and to be reconciled with Him and enjoy that cleansing? That's what this psalm is about. It's about the assurance that God does this. He's a God of forgiveness. He did not create you. He did not redeem you, believer, to live in guilt, to live in ongoing alienation from the God who reconciled you to Himself. May we take full advantage of this forgiveness, this 
application of justification in our lives as believers. He's a wonderful, merciful Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the conviction of sin, for the guilt that causes us to cry out out of the depths. Oh Lord, save us. Oh Lord, rescue. Oh Lord, forgive. And we praise you this morning that forgiveness is with you, that you may be feared. And we do reverence you, Father. We do fear you. We do trust you. Oh, for grace to trust you more. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.